Hello, uh, welcome everybody to Beastly Series. Today I'm very happy to be talking to Steve Alton. You may know him as the, the author of the, the Meg books and others. Um, in cryptozoology circles, I think, Steve, that not enough attention is, is paid to the Megalodon, actually, and it does seem to be uh, such a wonderful and mysterious candidate uh, for us to, to divert our attention to. There are supposed sightings now and again, but from a fictional point of view, I read your book, I've seen the movie, I am British, I am a Jason Statham fan, so, um, yeah, and I really enjoyed it, and I thought, wow, you know, this is this is another line, you know, could we be entertaining, and could we be informing people about possible living cryptids, or the possibility of living cryptids through fiction, and that's what I really like about what you've done in many respects. Now, I just wanted to talk to you quickly about the Meg series. I mean, let's just tell people what it's about when it came out um, some time ago now, if I'm correct. Yeah, Andy, uh, Meg came out uh, in 1997 in hardback. And uh, the series is in its uh, sixth novel. It also has um, a, a prequel called uh, Meg Arsons, and it has a uh, uh, a smaller series called, in its first print, uh, called Angel of Death. And the uh -huh. first book in that series is called Survivor. So that that book comes in between uh, Meg 1 and Meg 2, which was Meg, a novel of the terror and the trench. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I mean, I'm just looking to the bibliography on your your Wikipedia page, for example, it's really, really vast. And clearly, from that first book, there's been some time to write. But still, I mean, what are we talking? Twenty-one books or more at the moment. It's um, twenty-one books, even in in twenty-three plus years. That that's a lot of work. That's somebody who doesn't like to sit around <laughs> and twiddle his thumbs and and you know live on the um, live on the the kudos and the proceeds of of um, previous accomplishments well what, what drives you with that i mean clearly you were you went to sports medicine before you've got a doctorate in that i mean that's um that seems to be a career path why the switch suddenly into into writing well the doctorate is actually in sports administration the master's ah, in yes. sports medicine which is a glorified way of saying i was taking athletic training but so i do i do have a doctorate 10 straight years of school but uh Nothing that I'd call myself Dr. Alton about. Uh-huh, I see. So what I, motivates I, me, you ask? Well, the yeah, fear of poverty yeah. is one thing that keeps <laughs> me motivated. Uh, it's good motivation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good motivation. But what motivated you to start writing about things like, like the Meg? I mean, clearly, similarly to myself you would have been a Jaws fan at some point uh, you know Michael Crichton and all those guys um, suddenly not suddenly but you became a writer what what drove you what made you write what got you into that well it did start at the age of 15 with reading Peter Benchley's Jaws and that got me interested in reading about great white sharks and I started with uh, every uh, you know attack that had been documented about him spent many hours at libraries as a 15 year old but there was always a, a little blurb about Carcara and Megalodon the prehistoric cousin of the great white usually accompanied by a black and white photo of six nerdy looking scientists sitting in a jaw in the Smithsonian mm. yes and then we flash forward 20 years I'm about 35 years old struggling to support a family of five uh bouncing around from different careers to different career um and then uh, in August of 95, I picked up a Time magazine and on the front cover was the Mariana Trench. Uh -huh. The Mariana Trench, for those who don't know, is the deepest part of the ocean, seven miles down, about uh, 1,500 miles long and 40 miles wide, and basically unexplored. But the article went into the fact that prior to 1977, uh, as far as scientists were concerned, there was no life at the bottom of the ocean because there was no sunlight down there. Mm -hmm. But lo and behold, the Alvin Submersible went down there, and guess what they found? More abundant life than they could have imagined. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hydrothermal vents, 
breeding uh, tube worms, breeding small fish, breeding large fish, breeding bacteria, breeding all sorts of things. It's something they, instead of photosynthesis, now they had chemosynthesis and life at the bottom of the ocean. And when I read that article, Andy, I, I thought back, well, you know, this would be a cool place to put that giant shark I, I had seen a picture of when mm -hmm. I was 15. And so I went to the library and found out what the creature was, Megalodon, and I made a goal to write a book. And that's how I got started. I would write, because I had a job during the day, uh, I could only work at the, on the book at night and on weekends. So I used to write from about 11 o'clock at night till about three in the morning and then on weekends. And um, it took me about six months to have a 400 page manuscript. And at that point, I didn't know what to do with it. And so I went to the bookstore and took out a book on, bought a book about how to get published. Mm -hmm. And they recommended if, that you send out a two-page query letter to every agent who handled your genre, which mine was fiction. So I sent out about 60 to 70 different letters and heard from about a dozen people who weren't interested and one person who was. And he was an agent in California named Ken Atchity. Mm -hmm. And Ken felt that Meg would make a great book and movie. But he said it needs a lot of editing. Editing is like cutting a fish. You chop off its head, yeah. you chop off the tail, and you start with the meat in the middle. And he offered to edit the book with his uh, company uh, for more money than I had. Mm -hmm. But I did have a 1971 Chevy Malibu convertible. My dad had bought me when I was 17, so I sold that and borrowed some money and paid for editing fees. And we edited the book together. And uh, on September, Friday the 13th in 1996, I went to work at a general as the general manager of a wholesale meat company to find out that I've been fired. They no longer need my services. And wow. I went home with about 50 bucks in the bank and my wife and kids at home and my wife was crying. And I said, honey, this is great. Now I can work on my second book. <laughs> she about threw a frying pan <laughs> at my head. But four days okay. later, the manuscript to make went to the six biggest publishing houses and buoyed by the fact that we had a first look deal at Disney's Hollywood Pictures, wow. garnered a final bit of two book deal for seven figures. So that's how my writing career started. That's amazing. Now, when you said about the frying pan uh, flying at the <laughs> head, I mean, there's a lot that I really relate to in this. And yeah. I mean, sure, and that's a serious moment. That's a make or break moment when you got to face the wife and wonder about what's going to happen to the kids, right? Um, and that's a, that's an all or nothing moment, but you put yourself in it. And that to me seems apparent. I've been reading a little bit about you and looking at your, um, say your bibliography and, and everything else that you've done. It does really seem like somebody that's made a good career, but has not forgotten that what is not to have a career. And as you say, you know, poverty, the, the driver state of poverty keeps you going. And uh, there's a lot of creativity in necessity, right? Um, what I wondered about regarding your book, the series of books, is how you came to that point of trying to make the movie. Of course, there was there's something that's described on your site as um, going through years of development hell to make the Meg movie. Of course, the book is in 1997, and what we've just, I suppose we've just seen the movie in 2018, haven't we? So describe that. How did that process work for you? First of all, having it put forward uh, to be optioned, or whatever the, the term is for a movie, and then what are the stages that you go through before it actually gets made? Well, I'm not kidding when I say my life is, my career has been a roller coaster ride. It's been big ups and big downs, and they've come constantly throughout the last 25 years. And uh, the Meg movie was also its own roller coaster ride because, like I said, we had actually optioned the movie rights to Meg before the book was sold. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hollywood Pictures grabbed it on a first look deal. And uh, over the next two years, it went through a a couple of different screenwriters with some really horrible scripts. And then at the end of two years, the uh, the studio head, David Vogel, was fired. 
And wow. when a new studio head comes in, they let go of all the old studio heads projects because if they do well, it's going to reflect good on their, their predecessor and they don't want uh -huh. that. <laughs> so the rights to make went into reversion in 1998 and nothing happened for about seven years until a friend of mine, Nick Nanziata, who was the uh, creator of CHUD, which stands for Cinematic Happenings Under Development, found out that Meg Rice came back to me. And so he showed the book to a friend of his, Guillermo de Suero, the director, and Guillermo's producer of Hellboy, Lloyd Levin. Oh, wow, yes. Amazing director. And so they loved it. And um, they said, listen, we want you to write a script along with, we're going to attach a director to it, the project. And they decided to attach Jan de Bond, who is the director of Twister. Mm -hmm. And Jan and I wrote a script together and they took the package out to New Line Cinema and uh, with a bunch of producers attached, probably producer heavy, they finally got the deal done. And once New Line Cinema had the, the script and the rights to make, they tossed the script aside and brought in another script screenwriter, Shane Salerno, who was a great screenwriter, but Shane decided that he's going to take the book and the plot in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And he basically rewrote Moby Dick with a whale instead of, yeah. instead of a shark and megalodon. Okay. That didn't work too good for me or anyone else. And after two years of struggling with that project at New Line, the rights were reverted again. Uh, this was, I think, in 2008, 2007, 2008. And so I let everyone go, and, and I brought in a friend of mine who I met a couple of years earlier, Bell Avery. And Bell was a producer in her own right, but Bell's forte was raising money. Mm. So Bell optioned the, optioned the movie rights for me, and as well as the lock, Battle of Loch Ness Monster. Uh-huh, yeah. And so she went out and tried to raise the money herself, and eight years later, she was able to raise 150 million, most of it coming from a, a Chinese production company called Gravity Pictures. Wow. And she took that package and, and a script that she and I had written together, which is what got the money raised, and took it for distribution to Warner Brothers. And Warner said, hey, you know what? We really like this. We just don't want to distribute it. We want a piece of it. So they bought into the deal. And uh, 2018, the movie came out. 23 wow. years after it was originally optioned in 1996. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that just goes to show you, really goes to show you that it's never, it's never a simple business. Um, uh, there's, there's a funny line I used to like in the, um, oh, somebody used to say this line, that you just, most of pitching movies or discussing books or anything that you're doing, TV series, is meeting people and sitting down and talking and saying, this is great. We like this. Let's talk again in three months time. And it seems to go on and on and on. 23 years is probably the, the, the biggest gap I've ever heard of. But I, I watched the movie again tonight, by the way, just to refresh myself. And I love it. It's a great movie. It's good fun. It's, uh, it's got great effects. It's the script seemed nice to me. It's an action movie, but that's, that's what you're looking for. You know, that's what you signed up for when you, you uh, watch something like this. And yeah, it sits well. So, you know, I think that's a good idea. Now, talking about the lock, actually, and you mentioned that, and that's a, a passion of mine, the place I've been to many, many times before. I noticed in your book, The Lock, the, the original one, I know there's a, a new one about to come out, or it has come out, is that right? Heaven's, Heaven's uh, The Lock was the first book. The second book was actually called Vostok. It should have been called The Lock, uh -huh. Vostok, but they didn't like the title. Uh -huh. And then, they should have used that. And then the lock three, Heaven's Lake, is one I'm working on presently. Yeah. Okay. So with the, the first one, there's something in there that essentially you had this idea. And this does really uh, uh, head into what we're dealing with right now with Loch Ness. You had this idea a long time ago that the Loch Ness monster was a giant eel, right? Yeah, I, I can't claim total credit for it because uh -huh. it actually came from a cryptozoologist friend of mine, Bill McDonald. Uh -huh. Bill had okay. been to Loch Ness many times, and, and when I was about to start writing the book, I, I picked his brain and he, and he showed me his theory, and I said, you know, that's yeah. a good one. I'm going to borrow that from you if that's okay. And he said, sure. Okay, okay. Well, obviously, I would imagine when Professor Neil Gemmell's eDNA study of the Loch came out very recently, 
and they concluded there was nothing there but perhaps a large population of eels, one of whom could possibly be, you know, giant size. They they couldn't determine that or not. What were your feelings about that? I mean, I would imagine that point, your friend uh, and yourself were feeling pretty cheaper about that, that outcome, you know, uh, especially with the, the sense of prediction or prophetic um, fiction that took place there in the book. Well, you know, reading about, I assume you're talking about New Zealand study that they did a few mm. years ago. That's right, yeah. The one that was just recently published. Yeah. The eDNA study by Professor Neil Gemmell. Yes. It would have been nice to have been mentioned in, in the same story, but they decided not to. And, and uh -huh. of course, I was way ahead of the curve on that one. And I was also ahead on the curve with Meg because in my book, Meg, in the series, uh, hydrothermal vents are at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. And that was, I, I first came up with that back in 1995 when I started writing the book. And I think 15 years later, they actually went, they actually found a lot of the hydrothermal vents in the Mariana Trench. So I was one of, uh, a writer for the LA Times book review had really chastised me for assuming that hydrothermal, he, he decided that there was no, Richard Ellis, who wrote a book about the great white shark and is a painter, mm. he was he chastised me because the L.A. Times yeah. were angry because Ben Doubleday had used a quote from the L.A. Times write, writer who had interviewed me calling Meg Jurassic Shark. And that was a great quote. Doubleday decided to use it on the cover yeah. of the book. And the uh, L.A. Times uh, book review editor decided he was pissed off about that. So they decided I, to get on me. <laughs> I read that article actually. Jurassic Con was that the article? Something uh, like that. by Richard Ellis. Now, that to me, um, I'm not getting to anything personal here at all. But in this genre, in cryptozoology, you do tend from time to time to get a few detractors and uh, very notable people who've done their research and have been in the field for a long time. But sometimes the criticism that one gets seems to smack a lot of jealousy or um, perhaps uh, objection to competition. You know, if somebody figures something out before you do, often that can rile you up, especially if something that you failed to figure in your long, long career. Um, well, let me, point, let me point two things out, Andy. First, Meg is a fictional book. Yeah. Fiction, it means it's not real. Second, uh, Richard Ellis had, had been given an advanced reading copy so he was yeah. criticizing me on on spelling mistakes or oh God. it's an advanced reading That's copy it's, yeah. it's full yeah. it hasn't been edited yet yeah and the and the third thing was I was right and he was wrong he claimed that there was no <laughs> hydrothermal vents in the Mariana Trench and 15 years later they found them so yeah you know I call that. Uh, well, I read, I read it, and it reminded me a little bit of a similar, um, similar review I'd had from from a competitor. That essentially, you, you kind of get the feeling when something's more personal than um, uh, than professional. And I always like to say that critics, uh, critics are, are like crickets; they make noise but no sense, you know. And um, that's often what happens. Often what happens if we do need them. But of course, it, sometimes somebody seems to have um, uh, seems to have a, an ulterior motive. But that, that's fair enough. I read it; it didn't seem to ring true to me, anyway. And um, I don't think it would have to anybody else either. Now, talking about um, stuff like this, you having this idea about the Mariana Trench having these thermal vents. I really like this idea. And this, what was the film on top called? What, what was that? The um, the substance that covered it. That wasn't a flaw, but in fact, a, a very thin film of. Oh, it's well, the hydrothermal vents spew mineralized water. And so the, yeah. my theory was that the mineralized water was coagulating at the cold layer, which uh -huh. was and uh, the geothermal layer. They, I think they used the term. OK, OK. So that, that, that was very, very interesting. And I, I like that. Now, talking about this, that brings me on to research techniques. So, you know, making fiction feel like fact is, is there's a certain talent to do, doing that. So how do you do that? What research techniques 
do you match with storytelling to make the things that people are reading seem plausible? How do you do it? And that's a very important part of my my books because all of them, the I call them faction, a mixture of fiction and fact, mm. where the lines of fact blur with fiction, which makes for a lot more fun to read. And the only way to do that is you got to put the work in. I mean, it could take me a year, year and a half, sometimes two years to write a book, which is a long time. Mm-hmm. But I want to get the details right. I mean, I've actually, I've actually, you know, written about a restaurant in. Um, way up north in Canada where the Inuit live. And I called the restaurant to find out what was on their special just to put it in the book. So yeah. every little detail is important to me, but the big ones are, of course, big, big importance to the storyline. And how do you how do you line those things up? <clears throat> so, for instance, when you're setting out the book, you have one sort of uh, file over here with all of the listing, all of the fine details that go into every part of the book that people don't really notice, but they would if they checked, like the restaurant, for example. And on this other side there, you have plot storylines and character um, uh, emphasis. So how do you set it up on, on your desk, so to speak? You know, they must have books and a double screen and everything laid out in front of you. Or is it something a lot more simple than that? Well, it starts with the, you know, an idea for a book starts with a concept of what if, or, uh, and that leads to a lot of research, which will lead to a beat sheet. And a beat sheet is sort of the major beats of the story, which which gives you sort of a roadmap to get to the, to the end of the book. So, and then once I start writing, then the, that, that's when I focus on the small details. Okay. Okay, so that's something that really... I suppose comes afterwards. So that really brings me on to the next part that I was interested in is when you're getting inspired, is it more that you have light bulb moments or, or all your creations, the, the accumulation of refinement and, and reworked ideas and, and concepts? Yeah, I mean, that all comes out in the process, absolutely. Okay, that makes more sense to me, really. Now, there is something else going on at the moment, which is um, it's a new thing they're doing, Sea Monster Cove. So let's talk about that. You know, what is it? I believe it's coming soon. When does it happen? How do people see it in this COVID world that we now have entered into? Okay. So that's really I mean, what I was wondering uh, with Sea Monster Cove. What is it? Is this is this a big venue? Is it an event? Is it something that's solely online? And when does it open? Well, Sea Monster Cove is an entirely different project, something that's never been done before, as far as I know. And it's basically um, it started out as a concept for a, uh, a story that came to me in December of 2019. I was going through a very rough time. Uh, financially and also medically i've had parkinson's for 14 years ah. and uh it got to the point where i couldn't even afford the medicine that i was taking to help me move but i was able to get through the period because um one morning in december i woke up about 4 a.m and my mind was very quiet and suddenly i don't know where it came from you know you call it the universe you call it god you call it whatever you want to call it but it happened and it just an idea popped in my head for a new universe of prehistoric monsters, you know, something different than Meg, but along the same sweet spot, the same wheelhouse. And uh, I got up and ran to my office as quickly as somebody at 4 a.m. could run with Parkinson's up to his office. And five hours later, I'd done the research that found the elements of the story that I was thinking of. And basically, uh, it, the story for this dealt with um, a marine biologist and two of his companions who were in an island, Lagoon, a very real island in the Mariana Trench, the Northern Mariana Trench called Mog, M-A-U-G, which sounded like Megan. That's the, what hooked me when I started doing the research. Nice. And uh, this marine biologist, a French marine biologist named Dr. Max Rostan, they discover that the lagoon is very warm and that superheated mineral water is coming from somewhere. Now, this used to be, this was a volcano like all the islands in the Mariana Trench or the Mariana 
archipelago, they were all formed from vol volcanic activity. Mm -hmm. And five million years ago, the, the, the volcano that was Mog um, detonated, it, it erupted. And what's left today is three islets that used that were part of the rim of the volcano, and the uh, the magma chamber, which is called um, a caldera, which is where the lagoon is. Mm -hmm. But superheated water is still flowing up into the lagoon. So when Max Rostein discovered this, at that time, um, a fishing trawler pulled into the lagoon while they were doing their work. And it was and caught in the, in the deep net, the, the deep trail net was what th they thought was a whale. Uh -huh. Now, being marine biologists, they went over to the fishing trawler and they said, "Hey, you got to let the thing." Oh. To which the fishing trawler captain, who was more pirate than captain, basically told them that this isn't a whale; it's a shark, a oh. big basking shark, forty-foot basking shark that we hooked. And it's it's tossing and turning. It's pregnant and it's panicking, so it's going to sink us. So we're going to drown it in the shallows. So Dr. Rostan convinced them to let it go, but by the time they got to it, it was dead. So uh -huh. Dr. Rostan did an emergency C-section right there in the shallows, and released 15 pups. Most of them had already died, but of the 15, they were all female. 14 were were black pups. One was an albino, huh. and but they realized that this is not a basking shark. This thing has teeth. Well, of the four that they had kept alive, they released two of the dark ones into the ocean and filmed it being released. And they immediately, they took a, you know, a few strokes of their tail and they died. Wow. To which they realized that the two ones that were still surviving in, in one of the... Um, the uh, uh, specimen pools that was using lagoon water were fine. So they realized somehow this pregnant female must have come from where the, the water that fills the lagoon are, originates. Huh. And that left them with a choice because they realized that the pups could not survive unless they stayed in the lagoon. But soon they would be getting pretty big. And uh, this species, what they realized was a prehistoric mako shark, almost 50 feet long, huh. had to come from somewhere down in the Mariana Trench or hydrothermal vents or somewhere mysterious that, that um, was keeping it alive for all these years. So they had a choice. They could either kill the pups, which would prevent the species from breeding and starting a new apex predator species. Mm -hmm. Or they could raise it themselves. So they decided that they were going to raise the pups themselves and stay in the lagoon. They built these um, um, pens in the lagoon to raise them. But after three years, they had gotten so big that in order to keep them, they had to build aquariums in the lagoon. But to get the money to do that, they had to, they had to prove to the investors that if something happened to these sharks, that they could find other species that were prehistoric as well. So they sent one of the pups, which was called Layla. Mm -hmm. The other one was the, the albino was Snowflake. They released Layla along with a, um, a remote drone into the deep waters. And Layla led them into an aquifer that had opened up due to a sea quake that had happened about three years ago, right around the time that, that these, um, the, the, the um, Filipino fishermen had, had caught the uh, mother. Uh -huh. And so they go down there and they find an entire prehistoric aquifer that dates back 300 million years. All sorts of creatures in there. And that's how, and that story is what gave birth to Sea Monster Cove. Wow. Now, Sea Monster Cove was intended first in, and foremost, it's a TV series, a web TV series that I'm writing mm -hmm. and producing with major motion picture special effects. But Sea Monster Cove is also a remote experience for people to go visit these aquariums. And mm -hmm. the creatures are using the very best special effects using 360 uh, controls for the, for the visitor. 
so that the, the visitor can control what they're looking at and the creatures respond to them. They, they're attacking them actually because they're not wow. very happy. So there's different ways that you can look at it. So I was going to give you a little taste of what that is. Yes, please do. Please do. Right. I think we're still sharing your screen. So let me we see. We are. We are. That's how it so what these um, I was oh incredibly I was able to find fans of mine who were tremendous 3D animators who are working with us, and uh, I'll give you a sample of that. Now there are six. Um, let me see here. Uh -huh. okay. There are two different aquariums. This first one is where we keep the prehistoric sharks. This is called the O Aquarium because the tank is shaped like a giant O. Uh -huh. and that's where Snowflake lives. The other aquarium, which is right here, this is Sea Monster Cove, and it's made up of six different spheres surrounding a, a major sphere, which is a hotel. Um, it's very cool. So this, uh, I'll pull up some better pictures in a couple minutes. That's just, I didn't have them prepped. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, but this, um, this first visitation is an archive that was taken back uh, when, the, when the spheres were being prepared. Now, there's six different spheres, we, spheres, aquariums that we can add more to. And each one deals with a different time period in our history. Uh -huh. So this first one dates back to the Devonian age when the uh, the two major uh, sea monsters at that time were the uh, Dunkleosteus mm -hmm. and the um, and a shark um, that had sort of like an ironing board dorsal fin ah, yes yes I know now this you're gonna see two different archives here there's no sound on this one but it gives you an idea of the level of the, the 3d and sophistication the first part of this DVD of uh, this uh, feature is um, the medical sphere being prepared filled with lagoon water because it's the lagoon water that keeps these creatures alive. Mm -hmm. And the second part of the of the video is the Dunkleosteus as it arrives. Have a look. So let's take a look. I'm loving the concept. So like I said, there's no sound to this, but... Um, You'll get the idea. Uh huh. So this is the inside of the sphere. These, uh, the outside of the sphere is actually uh, solar paneling, so that we mm. that itself. Uh, uh, contained all the electricity is provided by the solar panels. So we take a look around and in a minute we're going to actually go into the water. Okay. This is, I mean, this is very, very nice. It's very swish. Look at that. And in we go. This is in the water. Now, these creatures are used to living in the darkness. So when we put the Dunkleosteus and the other creatures in it, mm. the uh, exterior panels will be darkened so it doesn't hurt their eyes. Uh -huh. And here we go into the arrival of the dunk. Now, as a member of Sea Monster Cove, you'll be able to take these journeys yourself. This is just an archive, so there's nothing you can really do here except watch it, but you'll uh -huh. see the difference in the next one. It's all interactive from the next point. Well, uh, most of them are interactive. Uh -huh. And there's the dunk. Wow. And she'll be coming around. Now, the dunk Leosteus has like armored plating and was one of the first uh, jawed creatures. Uh, the Devonian was known as the uh, Age of the Fishes. Mm -hmm. About 350 to 400 million years ago. Look at this. 
Very, very nice. Now the second one is more of a visitation, more interactive. Uh -huh. Take a look. Now there's several different ways you can you can view the creatures. One is uh, through the observation deck. The other is more adrenaline pumping. You can actually go into a cage and be lowered into their environment. Oh, wow. Now this is a 360. Okay, I see the shocks as well. So there's, we have uh, dunks in here. We have the stegacanthus, which is the shark. Uh -huh. Now, if you notice up here, Andy, there's this uh, this circular thing to here. navigate. Just, okay, yeah. Yeah, you can you can look at anything you want to look at. I just paused it, but um, there we go. So this is the viewing area. Uh huh. And can you you can walk around to different vantage points? I would guess as well. Yes. Yeah. Steve, is this open now or is it, it's coming in a few days, is that right? That's a trillet bite. Mm. The perspective like is, is, is really lovely as well. I really like the perspective. I think people will like that they can they can walk around. That's the whole point of it, I'm guessing. Exactly. You, you can be you can there see. without being there. Oh, God, look at that. You can see in the middle here the cage. This is the cage that you can actually enter and be lowered into the. Ah. Uh, ah. <laughs> Fantastic. That certainly would be an experience. And I think. For some people, you know, with the right home cinema system and sound system, it really could be something special. Yeah. Yeah. So you can view it on your phone, you can view it on a large screen, you know, yeah. but the effects are all there. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Now I'll show you something a little different. This is also interactive. There are, um, hang on one second here. There we go. There are, uh, Two different five-star hotels in the um, the aquarium, which is where we keep the uh, prehistoric sharks. The big uh, attraction is Snowflake. That's the albino that was caught years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, before I show you what she looks like today, let's pull up her archive with her uh, sister Layla. This is before okay. Layla went missing into the mm -hmm. ancient aquifer. We'll be able to take a look at the, the, the two pups here. It should pop up. There we go. I see. I see. Okay, so this is the uh, archive footage. Expand the screen here. Now there is sound to this one. So there's Snowflake. Oh, yeah.
There's Snowflake. She's getting bigger. And there's Layla. Uh -huh. Nice animation as well. And this is the girls, the Snowflake and Layla. This is um, Dr. Marston watching from a cage. They got too uh -huh. big for them to swim out freely with them. Just a little too playful. And these are not great whites. These are prehistoric makos called a Mako. black, black demon, which is believed to uh, inhabit the Sea of Cortez, the modern-day versions of them. Oh, I've heard about this. Yes. So this this is allegedly a, a currently undiscovered cryptozoological shark, or at least um, thought to be extinct. Correct. Yeah, yeah. No, this is amazing. Who who did who did the work for you? Which company did you work in conjunction with to animate uh, and, and to create the spheres and, and everything within? We had found the three D animators from uh, a project they had done independently called Caged. Uh -huh. which was uh, a diver in, in a cage with a shark, similar to what we offer here. Mm. And uh, here, let me pull up um, the Black Demon Inn actually backs up to the uh, O Aquarium so that you can actually rent a room, or in this case, as a member, you get to see it for free. You get to stay there for free, I should say. Uh -huh. And let me just reduce this. Give me one second here. Uh, I'll pull it up on something else. Um, I'm sure it's not okay. I'll pull up some. Okay, hang on one second. Let's try this. And mm -hmm. see, how does it work? I, people become members. They they pay a fee. There's there's visiting days. I, I'm assuming there's a, several different types of ways to access the site. Yeah, we're we're actually only. We're, you know, because of the pandemic, I wanted to keep the prices very low, the monthly membership very reasonable. So we only charge $9.95 a month. That oh. includes everything, video game, access to the hotels. This is uh, the uh, Black Demon Inn where Snowflake lives here. here we go. So this 360 device allows you to look mm -hmm. at whatever you'd like to look at. Very cool. Very, very cool. So you can pop this on, loop it, and just relax, and, and the uh, angles change. And you can just basically sit back and watch Snowflake. Uh, as go you to work. Yeah. In bed. yeah. Watch it go to work. It's amazing. It's amazing. And all of this came to you, as you say, you you were you were had, um, dealing with your. Did you say you have Parkinson's? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. How long have you had that? Fourteen years. Okay. And uh, if you don't mind me just probing you a little on on that aspect, sure. Do you find that that's it's a hindrance to your writing? Do you get exhausted very quickly, or does it affect focus uh, and memory, or is it just simply? your movement is affected so therefore perhaps typing's a little bit difficult etc uh it's painful physically uh, -huh. uh it uh, can cause muscular spasms it, it can cause uh um rigidity that makes it difficult to move it can cause tremors uh but um you know well one of the purposes of this project 
is that uh, about seven years ago, um, I was introduced to a guy who um, who uh, was treating Parkinson's with natural extracts. Mm -hmm. uh, see, the, with the medication, the medication can be effective only over time. To get, you have to take more and more of it, and there's side effects. Yeah. And the side effects can be as violent as the disease itself. But he developed something that was natural. And so one of the goals that I have, and he also created an extract that, that now this is big, that can cure stage four cancers like uh, pancreatic cancer, brain cancer, wow. and the, uh, the cancer that took my father's life about nine years ago. So one of my goals is that if we can get this word about this project, Sea Monster Cove, out there, then a dollar for every $9 membership would go toward the, getting this information out to people and getting the extracts to people who really need it, who can't afford it because it's very expensive. Okay, so I think that's that's very noble. That's very uh, wonderful. What What is the extract called? Uh, can we can we ask? Uh, give me one second. I'm going to turn your volume up because I'm losing a little bit here. Oh, I see. I see. There you go. Oh, okay, I, and what is the extract called? Uh, the Parkinson's extract is called RG40. The uh, cancer extract is um, a little bit different name, but uh, you know, yeah. once we open up next Wednesday, uh, we'll I'll provide all the information to everyone who needs it on the on the sure. website. Sure. And it, it, it was, of course, uh, send me all of those links, and I'll make sure they they go in the description as well. And I think that is a very strange thing. You no, know, I was um, I've talked to a few author strangely in recent times who have parkinson's and uh, i'm sure it's not related just a, a coincidence but it is something it seems to be very very difficult to deal with because of the physical effects now i myself i don't have anything like that uh, uh andy i'm losing you a little bit your your mic you are caught in your, there you go how's that how's uh that? try again uh, any better now? That's better. When you adjusted the last one, I could hear you a little better. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. Um, so I don't have anything like that. Um, I do have chronic fatigue syndrome uh, with fibromyalgia. Now, it's something I was only diagnosed with two years ago. But what I notice is that I do not have any memory of the day before. Nothing at all. I can remember if you prompt me. I can remember if somebody says, do you remember yesterday we went and we got that coffee? Then I can remember, but there's no picture. There's literally nothing at all that reminds me of what happened the day before. And apparently it's just one of the the symptoms, one of the symptoms of, of that type of thing, as well as the, you know, the unending fatigue, <laughs> which is unexpected, you know. Um, and you just find ways to deal with things, don't you? And, and get on with what you would normally do. Um, so that's yeah, you know, my, I do have some sympathy for anybody who's struggling. Although mine, I wouldn't say I, I struggle. It's just a bit of a pain in the ass. That's how I find it. Um, talking about this project, see once ago. I mean, it does look really great. And again, like I said earlier, you know, I do really feel um, that I'm talking with somebody who just keeps working and keeps creating things. And I, I like that. You know, I think that enriches all of us that we keep things going and we keep trying when things are a struggle. You know, realistically, making sure that we're not struggling to achieve something we're not good at. But still, um, you know, it's worthwhile. Now, I just wonder before we, we finish, um, do you have any advice for authors, any authors that, that, that may be listening to you? What would you tell them um the advice i give authors is um pretty simple and that is um don't write about what you know write about what you like to read and then go get the information and, and learn about it mm -hmm. if, you, if you only if i only read about wrote about things that i knew it'd be a pretty thin book and pretty boring mm -hmm. but i write about things that intrigues me um, prehistoric sharks, uh, prehistoric sea monsters, uh, you know, and the thing about Sea Monster Cove is that it's not just 
uh, a web TV series, which is uh -huh. going to be amazing. And you can see the level of our special effects is yeah. not cheap. This is major motion picture effects. I mean, my animators have all worked on major motion pictures before, mostly sharks and prehistoric sea monsters, which works out well. And and um, but it's also uh, these aquariums that you can visit. Um, it's a it's a um, video game. It's educational sites. It's um, amazing photography, as you can see from some of the pictures you're looking at mm. now. And so, you know, for $9.95 a month, you get everything 24-7 access to it. Uh, the video games, the TV series, everything, and access to me as well. Well, I, I think it looks fantastic. And to be honest with you, Steve, I thought I was looking at an installation before you explained it better to me, what it, it actually was. I thought it was an installation that also had an interactive website. That went along with it. I thought, well, that's fantastic. How brave to open a huge installation in the middle of the COVID crisis. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the guy has got guys, but at least he has the, the online site too, so people can see it. And uh, it does, it really looks that real. And I would advise anybody listening or watching today to, to go out there and, and uh, sign up and have a look. And once again, part of those proceeds do go to that charity and uh, to help people suffering with, with, um, cancers and parkinson's and things like that so um thank you so much for coming on steve i i've learned a lot and as a you know as a newbie author with only one book under my belt and and another one uh somewhere in the middle uh it has been very very invaluable to me thanks so much for coming on thank you andy and i i hope you uh check us out on wednesday when we open up i absolutely will i will see you soon Take care.